Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Um, on this episode, I'm going to be talking about markets and the arts of attachments with two of the editors of the book, Joe Deville and Liz McFall. So welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Hi, Dave. This is a really interesting book, um, and I wanted to get you to, uh, to talk about it with me for a couple of reasons. The first is obviously the content, but it's part of a much broader intellectual project, which I think is quite um, kind of interesting and you know, is something that would be well worth thinking about. So before we kind of get into those two big questions, it'd be good uh, to let the listeners know a little bit about yourselves. Um, obviously, this is the second time you've been on the podcast, uh, first time with an edited book. But if you could just kind of say a little bit about your academic backgrounds and the kind of things you've been, been working on, maybe start with Liz. Yeah, okay. So I always find kind of struggle, given that I've got a very interdisciplinary or mongrel background. <laughs> So I always kind of struggle to really precisely name my field. Um, in some fundamental ways, I kind of think of my project as being about the sociology of translation because I'm concerned with trying to make sense across a number of interdisciplinary fields of um, kind of big questions about how culture and economy, material, technique, practice and sentiment are connected and how they work together. And for me, that's generally centred around the question of markets and, and yeah, market attachment. How is it that markets work to um, lure people in, particularly for dull and difficult products? So it's very easy to talk about the marketing of Coca-Cola or the marketing of Nike or the marketing of Taylor Swift. It's easy to think about people's desire being excited by those kinds of propositions. It's much harder to think about how desire and attachment, more specifically, is produced for products like industrial insurance, health insurance, or in in Joe's case, we work together quite a bit, um, in terms of debtor relationships. So how are those kinds of forms of attachment that are mediated through markets, engineered, and how are people involved in them? Yeah, and I think you know we share um, many interests. You know, we've co-authored a chapter in this book and have worked on a number of projects together. So I think in that respect, I think I share a lot with um, what Liz just outlined. Um, I guess one of my commitments, I think this is also reflected in Liz's work, um, is to when it comes to questions of finance and the economy, to really tie together and seek to trace the connections that tie together um, the really intimate world of domestic life uh, and the often seemingly more abstract world, but nonetheless very, uh, in some ways, very intimate also, actually, world of, of organisational life. So how financial processes move from the household to the, to the organisation and um, from the organisation back to the household as mediated by a range of technologies, devices, um, affects and processes and so on. Um, a lot of my work, has, as I just mentioned, is focused on, on debt. Um, so last time I spoke to you, I was talking about my book, which was um, 
uh, Lived Economies of Default, which looked at uh, debt defaults, the situation when people are unable to repay their debts, and particularly focused on the work of debt collection. So again, they're tracing both the kind of lived experience of a default to how, what it actually means uh, and how, what it feels like to encounter the routine prompt, uh, prompt of the debt collector and actually going into organisations and looking at how they go about the work of trying to extract as much value as they can from people who are, are defaulting on their debts. Yeah, and, and these kind of themes are really present in this uh, in this book, Markets and the Arts of Attachment. And I guess, Liz, you've kind of alluded to this, and, and again, it's come up in, in, in what you've just been saying, Joe, but you know, this is part of a much bigger uh, moment in British social science. And the book series, Culture, Economy and Social, is, is a reflection of, of this. And, and I think were both of your books published as part of that book series? That's right, I think yeah. both of our books. So I wonder if you could say a bit about that series uh, as a way of kind of introducing some of the themes that are in markets and the arts of attachments. Yeah, sure. So Cultural Economy and Social uh, book series is a book series that came out of a major ESRC-funded researcher, a major ESRC-funded research centre called CRESC, the Centre for Research into Social and Cultural Change, which ran for 10 years, finishing in 2014 and was shared by the Open University and Manchester University. And these questions about, well, how do we make sense of social and cultural change, particularly when we enter the new millennium, seemed uh, really significant, and particularly in terms of the fact that sociologists and social scientists talk about social change all the time, but we don't ever actually pin down what we mean by it. Now, Kresk decided that it, it was going to be time-limited. You know, It was going to run its 10 years lifespan and it would continue in some minor form after that but it was going to be time limited. There were two outcomes that were not to be time limited. One of them is this book series, um, Cultural Economy and the Social, um, and another one is the companion project, the Journal of Cultural Economy. And they in slightly different ways are trying to build this interdisciplinary pro- project of mainly social scientists but not entirely social scientists, not exclusively social scientists. Um, who are concerned really in kind of the understanding the boundaries between culture, economy and society. Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the things I've always really, really liked about the series, and when I've been involved, I think, I think it's actually my fourth book. No, sorry, my fourth, the fourth time I've been involved in a book in the series. So it's not actually necessarily through design. It just kind of ended up that way. But um, one of the things I've always really liked about this, this series, I think, is it's, uh, it's, it's kind of quite it's theoretical openness. So if you look across the whole series, I think you really, it's extremely sort of, um, well, it's disciplinarily diverse, as you point towards. I think it's also theoretically diverse. Uh, and I think in some respects that sort of is reflected in this book um, itself. So you can see a range of different influences, disciplinary influences and, and intellectual influences, which I think in some sense uh, is in keeping with, I guess, the, the increasing, you know, with the tradition of the series as it is, as it is still emerging. Where, where did this book come from? What, what was the kind of process of bringing together this um, edited collection? It's great. It's probably one of the slowest edited collections. This <laughs> I don't is, think. The, I'm sure there are far. I'm sure there are. This is really longer. slow academia. So back in 2011, we won a British Academy grant um, for a conference called Market Encounters, in which a number of the authors of who represented this book were presented at, and that gave rise to a product, a project called Charisma Consumer Market Studies, and that was partly um, 
in reflection on what had by then been about 10 years of dominance by the social studies of finance, which were taking a much needed um, material and technically focused approach to how um, finance works and particularly questions of performativity and questions of how you know, forms of action are distributed and produced through particular kinds of materials, techniques and forms of knowledge. And the, fi- the high finance end of that had had a lot of attention. And we were concerned, particularly with the way high finance is uh, related to what we call low finance, and that there needs to be forms of, well, charismatic organisation whereby consumer markets don't work by duping people, but they, they work by a kind of peculiar form of magic, black box magic that we've never really got to the bottom of. And we use charisma as a way of um, trying to say there is something going on here that neither big explanations like material and technical explanations or the simple phrase culture um, quite gets to. So that, that was why we use charisma. And this book is the first, it's not the first related product, but it's the first project that um, publication that comes specifically out of, of that network. The I think you've alluded to, uh, to, to to answer this question, but but obviously the thing that springs from just the title and the introduction is is what is this thing attachment? What what are we actually talking about here? Um, and and I guess you know how do you use that as a way of accounting for uh, this story of how people get involved, how people you know not get conned or duped by marketing, but how they get kind of enrolled in these. Uh, projects of contemporary consumer capitalism. So, yeah, what, what does attachment mean? What, what does this term mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess it sort of signals, I mean, I think most obviously it signals, signals an interest in, in relationships, the way in which relationships are build up, built up. And I guess, as Liz just alluded to, um, thinking with more precision about how those relationships are constructed, how they're maintained, and also sometimes how they fall apart. Um, I think in, in various ways, that's what the various contributions of this book do. They trace uh, these process, process of relationship building um, involving a, ver- a varied range of parties from uh, consumers to, to marketers to various devices and techniques that are involved in, as you say, kind of this seemingly kind of magical process of keeping people attached to markets, so connected to markets, keeping people sometimes passionate about markets. Um, uh, so it's like, yeah, so it's, it's, it's this question of relationality. And then the second kind of aspect of that is then thinking about the ways in which markets are, are distributed. So thinking about tracing these kind of chains of attachment that connect together various entities uh, in markets and sometimes exceed the intentions of those who are devising the techniques and technologies of attachment. So I think one of the things, a number of chapters in the book, uh, do is actually think about those situations when uh, attachments go awry or um, people invent new social and technical practices to, to manage uh, market attachments. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's partly, I mean, I think one of the, one of the, another kind of feature of the book is, that I guess, that people in the the right of the authors take this sort of turn in a variety of different ways. I think in some sense, each of them become explored in a different kind of facet. I guess the third point I'd just like to make, I guess, is that, and this is comes through particularly strongly in Frank Rochois' chapters. Frank Rochois is the third editor, I should just say, uh, 
in the book, is that market attachment, so creating the bonds that hold together markets, processes of constructing market attachment, also inevitably uh, construct social relationships. So the kind of conventional argument that, that markets are an intrusion into the social, that markets destroy social relationships. I think in some sense we're kind of challenging that by thinking the way the ways in which uh, the techniques and technologies that markets mobilise actually end up constructing new forms of relationship, new forms of connection between people, between people and organisations, um, have really quite significant social, cultural, economic uh, effects. So are these the kind of, oh, uh, the, what, what term do you use, the arts and devices of attachment then? So, so um, Joe's absolutely right to kind of signal the importance of relationships, the foundational importance of relationships in terms of understanding attachment. So we're not talking about attachment theory in a Bowlby sense, but it is there in the background in terms of this overall and overarching concern with relationships and how they're made. Now, um, this has a stronger reference back to work in yeah, the sociology of translation in the 1990s, in particular the, the work associated with Antoine Ennion, Genevieve Tell, and um, Michel Callon and Bruno Latour. Um, but Hignon in particular has been important in trying to elaborate what he refers to as a grammar of taste. Um, and the way he puts this, and I think it's, uh, for me it's really productive, is a curiosity about how an actor has himself loved things. Um, and that moment of how do you have yourself get involved in market action is one of the key underlying questions for for the book. What is that kind of recursive loop, that kind of recursive um, action that produces, yeah, produces markets? Um, so, yeah, that, that certainly for me, that, that relates to questions about devising, questions about not devices per se, which have had a lot of airing, ideas around, centering around market devices. This is very related to that project, the idea that there's an assemblage which um, underpins how action um, is distributed and um, how certain consequences come to be. Um, but devising is used to kind of signal the idea that this is a dynamic practice, that human beings are involved in it more than anything. This is not just about... Um, what particular technologies and what particular black boxes of knowledge and algorithms or whatever do. This is about the black boxes of dynamic human practice. How, how is that going on? And how much of it can we render? How much of it can we describe? And how much of it kind of eludes our attempts to describe? And that idea that love and the process of having yourself loved Every kind of love is an imaginary love to start with. This, uh, this idea that have somewhere in what William James calls the private fact of human reasoning, there is this process of having yourself get involved in the world, in the objects and in the people that surround you. Yeah, and just quickly, I think that just to sort of extend that a little bit, I think when thinking about these extremely sort of intimate Aspects of human human uh, relation of humans of you know of society. Um, 
one of the things that we're kind of interested in tracing are the ways in which there are all these attempts in, in market settings to capture some of this kind of intimacy, to capture, to capture kind of, you know, so there's one chapter we'll come on to, I'm sure, uh, looks at, you know, looks at love explicitly, looks at kind of at dating uh, websites and how dating websites go about the business of uh, capturing uh, potential love or sometimes lust. Um, but that there is this kind of inevitable excess, so it, it, it becomes very, very difficult. So there's always this kind of attempt to kind of capture this excess. But it's inevitably never sort of complete. So when we sort of think about questions of devising, we're not seeing these as processes that are uh, sort of totalizing and um, are wholly st- or are strategic in a way that is inevitably successful. But in actual fact, thinking about these as co-constructed processes, which you need to pay attention both to, to, to what's going on at an organizational level and what, and what organizations that claim they're doing. And on the other hand, looking at actually what happens when these devices actually encounter, as you say, the kind of dirt and the private fact of everyday life and things get complex. Um, uh, it becomes something very difficult to actually uh, to, to attribute uh, metrics to, to these processes, to, 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 to objectify these processes in some way. And sometimes, I mean, so in our chapter, which again we're coming to, these processes of, of devising fail because organizations are sometimes quite bad at actually understanding the multiplicity of attachments that are actually involved in relation to a particular product and related to a particular service. I mean, yeah, I, if, you, if you kind of hold that thought, because I think before we come into the specific work you do in your own chapter, it'd be good to get, I guess, a practical example of the kinds of things we've been talking about. And uh, I mean, I, the best way I've, I've thought to phrase this is, do, you know, do you love your Apple watch? Because <laughs> the, the, the introduction uses the example of one of the authors and her Apple watch. So, yeah. you know, do, do you know who that could be? <laughs> who that could be. So this was clearly me. Joe is quite, I think ambivalent would be putting it mildly. He's not an Apple fan. And Frank is more ambivalent about Apple. Um, but the Apple watch, uh, story is, is about my relationship with the Apple Watch which coincidentally broke um, just yesterday um, it lasted nearly, yeah, I'm detached now, <laughs> it lasted nearly two years but um, I am probably later today going to replace it um, because I feel lost without it and that is quite an interesting thing in itself in that my arm is now bare I'm not feeling uh, you know, I'm not thinking about this in a Donna Haraway cyborg kind of way, but the, the watch has become part of my arm, part of my daily practice, part of the way that I connect with the world. You know, obviously I look at it as a watch, but I'm also constantly monitoring my movement. It was crucial to me. And uh, I, I was training for uh, a race recently, and it was crucial for me to do that. But in minor practical ways... It buzzes when it's going to rain. It taps me on the arm um, if my children are uh, trying to get in touch with me. And it includes these... One of my favourite features is it gives me the ability to ping my phone. And now if I lose my phone, I've got no idea and no mechanism for figuring out where it is. So these practical ways, it sort of organises my relationships with my other devices and my relationships with with the people in my life and my general relationships with the weather, the world, um, and, and outcomes I'm attached to. So 
I was very interested in how that was orchestrated. And one of the things to talk about when we talk about when when I talk about it in the introduction is it's much more attractive than a Fitbit. I don't really feel like I have to hide it. I'm not embarrassed by its ugliness. Um, it's not so super functional looking. Um, and there's something that in a other work t- which is particularly focused on self-tracking and um, that we're interested in is the importance of sensory and ambient interfaces in the watch, which it, the watch is much more sensitive and amb- ambient in terms of how it displays action to you and how it addicts, you know, to return to broader themes of the book. We, we have this concern with devices that addict you in terms of producing particular forms of practice. And there is that. There's something addictive about closing yeah. the three rings of, of activity monitoring on the watch. Yeah, it's, it's not just an attachment to your wrist. It's, you know, kind of you get enrolled entirely in kind of like the project of being an Apple Watch wearer. Yeah. yeah. But, this, but I guess the key thing is that this, this is, you know, as Natasha Dalshul, you know, write about her book, this is addiction by design. This isn't, this is a, a kind of co-construction of design. And the particular way that you, for whatever reasons, interact with the various affordances and you know, forms of beauty that Apple put on display, but for whatever reason, you find very attractive and attaching. But, but also, I guess the, the kind of like the final moment with the introduction is, is the very first thing you say is that this is not a process of essentially kind of like conning you into being an Apple Watch owner. You know, it, it's kind of that almost kind of old school, I guess, you know, kind of Marxist critical uh, theoretical framework of, you know, these people are idiots, they've been conned by marketing. That really isn't where the book starts at all. Yeah, I mean, I think the three of us as editors and the authors, we all have somewhat different um, views on this. Um, For me, the addiction by design argument doesn't quite work. It's very persuasive. Uh, Natasha Dow Schultz's book on machine gambling and how machine gambling Mm. is engineered in very particular ways to produce addiction. Um, you know, that, that's a fantastic account, but for me it doesn't quite get there because, and the reason, one of the most simple logical reasons it doesn't quite get there is that some people will use these machines and develop yeah. this dependent relationship and other people won't. Um, and to return back to the idea of having oneself love things, one of the things we wanted to do was get into, well, what, what is the individual human being doing? How do we understand them? If we don't understand them as mute and dumb ciphers of mm. uh, 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 capitalist structuralist arrangements or neoliberal governmentality or however you want to phrase the what Lacanians would call the big other, um, you need to kind of take seriously what we are doing when we get involved in that grammar of taste. It's not a question of connecting these two things. It's actually understanding how they are always connected. They're only separated because we make them so. Yeah, and also just to connect, I mean, I agree. I agree very much with everything you just said. I mean, I think that part of, you know, part of what I've always been interested to do in my work, I think part of what this book also does, is thinking about the way in which market attachments are inevitably wrapped up with a variety of other forms of attachments. Um, and the two is sort of interface with one another and the, the two uh, affect and shape each other in, in a variety of different ways. So I think in some of the work on market attachment, we kind of misses out, I guess, these other forms of uh, attachment people have to to each other, to one another, uh, in kind of 
in, in friendship groups and familial groups. So some of our chapters uh, go on to talk about uh, online communities and so on, and thinking about the ways in which markets actually kind of uh, in, in, interact with these other forms of attack. They try and shape them inevitably. They're constantly trying to interact and intervene in them in some various ways. But of course, it's a it's a two way relationship. Um, so uh, the, the kind of these kind of other forms of attachment end up sort of shaping shaping market attachment. I think in some of the kind of accounts of market attachment, and perhaps in you know perhaps in, in Natasha's book as well, some of these other uh, processes and forms of relationality that you know exceed the space of the market, exceed exceed they say the casino aren't really accounted for. I, I mean, stop me if I'm jumping around too much, but but as you were describing that, um, the thing that springs to mind are two chapters. Um, one that talks about um, social media marketing and the other uh, that talks about consumer research in advertising. Um, and I wonder actually, yeah, you know, if, uh, if, if we might talk a little bit about those. Right. So the chapter by Thomas Aritzia in, in, in the book is quite an interesting one because he, he's looking at consumer research and advertising agencies based on ethnographic work that he did but the thing that's fundamentally interesting in terms of the thematic of the whole book is the way in which he describes how at this elusive object the consumer truth about a product is sought by the advertising agency but in being sought by the advertising agency it's produced by the advertising agency and this again goes back to a a longer legacy of, of thinking about um how the relationships between consumers and their products are engineered and distributed around a crowd of intermediaries whose job it is to figure out how products are already a potency, potentiality within people. So in, in, in some senses, there's a whole range of technical actions, specialist practices that go into putting products into people from the very start um and and this is something you can also see in the social media market yeah very much so i mean it, the, so this is um this is uh, kevin Millet's um uh, chapter um which again so very much like thomas's chapter does the work which i think really is not done enough in social science and in economic sociology broadly speaking of rather than just taking marketing practices at their word or looking at what happens when um when they kind of end up out in the world and we can all observe them actually going behind the scenes, look, going into the agencies that are involved in um, these various technologies of, of attachment. Um, in this particular chapter's case, um, it's kind of interesting. So it, it actually draws on data from around sort of 2008, 2009. So in some ways, it's a kind of historical chapter now because it's looking at social social media marketing in its earlier um, days. Um, but in what I think is why that makes it a particularly interesting case, because you can see the emergence of logics that become increasingly intensified um, recently but in their kind of in their sort of formative phase um you can see this concern with attempting to so one of the kind of things he looks at is, is the attempt to achieve contagion the attempt to achieve sort of virality so how to make a let's say a video how to make it go viral and you can see this is something that clients are absolutely obsessed with this is the kind of holy grail of marketing to 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 for individuals for communities have quite often plenty of disconnected communities to effectively do the work of marketing for you now of course this is the holy grail but it's incredibly difficult to achieve and also it's also incredibly different difficult for a, for a marketing agency to claim that they're able to achieve it based on 
you know, they'll try and mobilize their past record. They're trying to look back at them, those cases when they have been successful. But what clients want, to be, what clients want is predictability. Um, so what the chapter kind of documents is, is, is this kind of inevitable tension to kind of harness this indefinable something that exists out there in the world, which marketers themselves don't fully understand, but are desperate to tap into and, and to try and, and to try and metricize that, to try and quantify that, to try and objectify it in some way and to develop a variety of techniques to do so. But on the other hand, what I think it really captures is the real difficulty of doing so. You know, often in kind of sociological accounts, you get the sense that marketers are kind of all, all powerful and kind of omnipotent. And it, once you're actually going to go behind the scenes, you actually see some of the weaknesses in some ways um, of, 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 uh, of marketing. Or, or let's, just, let's just say, maybe not the weaknesses, but the struggles that are going on behind the scenes um, to, to kind of achieve these effects. And one of the things I think is interesting, and it kind of connects to a number of other chapters we may come on to talk about as well, is the, is the attempt also then to harness things like existing, uh, existing online communities. How do you go about harnessing these existing online, existing communities that exist online? How do you track those who have influence? How do you, you know, what, what um, data can you produce about those who have influence? How do you, how do you actually me- measure, start to measure influence? How do you start to measure um, contagion, which I think are very much themes that, flow flow through the book yeah and i guess immediately these kind of struggles um and, and these kind of you know harnessing projects um are given really kind of concrete examples with dove and american apparel in carolyn gerlitz's chapter you know where they those two companies had these you know kind of i suppose we're used to these modes of advertising now but you know, slightly unusual hmm. approaches um yeah so it'd be, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit uh, of your kind of take on on those two, uh, two yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> what Karen I think really nicely captures. I mean, so the the, the two cases she considers, yeah, as you say, Dove and American Apparel are um, both brands that seek to um, associate themselves not just with particular functional benefits, but with particular sort of social concerns, societal concerns, um, societal causes, particularly um, issues of bodies and bodily um, experience. Um, so, for instance, you focus on this kind of Dove campaign for real beauty, which I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with, that sought to kind of, uh, on the face of it anyway, sought to challenge dominant body norms and, and so on. Um, she draws on focus groups with women thinking about how these brands have or have not succeeded in uh, attaching themselves to their lives and in particular then thinking about how these brands succeed or not in becoming enmeshed in the broader kind of circuits of conversation and correlation that exists between people. So, I mean, I think one of the things that Dove has in some sense, or she argues has kind of achieved is to kind of insert itself as a point and so in the conversation between people about what bodily norms might or might not um, be. American apparel is particularly interesting because, so she, she again, looks at the, looks at the kind of particular aesthetic of American apparel and how uh, it's in, in, in its case sought to attach itself, attach itself to this kind of hipster kind of shortage um, kind of lifestyle. On the other hand, again, we kind of see that the operations of attachment kind of go rogue. She looks at people's um, Flickr posts uh, where people post up images often wearing American apparel clothes, but sometimes wearing completely different clothes. Um, but, you know, for instance, hashtags, um, you know, this is an American apparel look. Um, so on the one hand, you see kind of, you see, you see, people in some sense doing the kind of work of branding for the marketers. But on the other hand, you see uh, the brand kind of becoming something beyond just 
the the products to incorporate into sorry to incorporate a much wider set of of practices and and concerns and as in many other chapters and again to bring us the overall theme thematics of the book i think one of the things she's very very keen on tracing and i very much subscribe to this is that to understand these processes of attachment you need to you need to attend to what she calls the multivalence of attachment that attachments operate across a variety of different registers and enroll a variety of of different actors i mean there's lots and lots kind of more um i could ask you about and like the book is you know really kind of rich you mentioned <clears throat> there's a chapter on online dating there's a chapter about uh the kind of process of of how kind of call centers function as um enrolling and, and attaching mm-hmm. people um but i'd like to spend a, a bit of time talking about i guess kind of you know low finance mm-hmm. um, or you know everyday finance because several of the chapters in the book and i guess you know the kind of the things that come up in, in your work are really concerned with that um and there's, you know, there's a couple of things we could we could think about there. How, you know, credit card uh, companies kind of, you know, make consumers, um, or um, you know, how kind of everyday consumer finance um, functions. But I, I wonder if we might kind of approach this uh, more theoretically. Um, and one of the things that you do in in your chapter is engage with a theorist who's become, you know, really kind of uh, influential and important in British social science, Gabriel Tard. And it'd be interesting to know kind of where that um, theoretical kind of lineage um, gets us to when we're thinking about everyday finance and the kind of, yeah, I, mean, I, I quite like the term low finance, even though it probably isn't yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah. We're reclaiming it. <laughs> so I, I, I'd like to kind of start uh, into that question because it's really important one for the book and for that, for, for that whole um, project. Now, one of the things that runs through the book is the sort of tension between our are the arts and devices uh, of markets. Um, and Michelle Callum's <coughs> written a, a, a really wonderful afterword to the book in which he, he describes three different sorts of devices. Uh, devices of addiction, we mentioned earlier, devices of co-production, but also devices of conversation. Now, that's really important uh, you know, for Joe and I in particular, um, that notion of uh, conversation as being central to the relationship between um, consumers and their products. But especially um, when you think about low finance. So if we said earlier um, the, that we were interested in the relation, how, how really quite difficult and dull products are managed rather than the very obvious ones where you can talk about glamour and the excitement. So what about those things that people really don't want to buy? How do you engineer a relationship that lasts, you know, in some cases, an enduring intergenerational relationship between quite poor consumers, quite poor customers um, and financial companies? Um, and one of the one of the case studies that's used in our chapter is that of industrial insurance, which was a form of insurance for the poor, which was sold by agents collecting small premiums on a weekly basis door to door. Now, conversation was absolutely at the heart of that exchange. The agent was drawn from the communities they served, but was kind of schooled and trained and cultivated in very particular ways to be what I've called before a good average in the sense that they could fit in every home and they kind of knew how to listen and to speak to customers, but particularly to listen and gather. What was, you know, this was a massive market. Um, in the UK, you're talking about 70 million 
policies in existence in the 1940s. So they were sweeping up the data based on these conversations. Now, Gabriel Tarr, to go back to your uh, question, um, made um, a very explicit point of saying that in markets, producers and consumers never meet except through the mechanism of conversation. That exchange and that dialogue between people and producers, consumers and producers, uh, people in their markets, is absolutely integral. He says at one point, a thousand advertising trumpets would trump in vain if it wasn't for the art of conversation. And these agents um, were absolutely fundamental and they were bureaucratically organised in a way to make conversation, yeah, uh, an art and a device of how markets operated. And in that chapter, we um, look at that historical market, that historical low finance market, but we then compare it with um, Wonga, a very controversial low finance product from, yeah, from recent times. Yeah, and then and then what's really interesting there is that you have conversation and listing moving into a different register, which is the register of data and sort of big data, um, effectively, uh, where Wonga, for those of the listeners that don't know, I mean, Wonga is a payday loan company. It's a very controversial payday loan company, but it likes to see itself probably primarily, well, certainly in the past, and it has claimed that it is primarily a tech company um, uh, and um, claims to be able to um, make predictions about the credit worthiness of individuals based on a much wider range of data than is conventional in the credit market. So what happens here is you have this movement of conversation and listening, um, movement from it being face-to-face, happening on the doorsteps and the thresholds of people's homes, to the way in which people engage with its website, the various forms of, the various signals that and one can, can detect in a variety of um, forms of data that they're able to gather and they're able to, to access. And I think it's one of the things that our chapter does is looking at the way in which um, there are commonalities in these processes. You know, we need to understand these data-oriented processes of market attachment as, in actual fact, conversational and as involving listening. So I think, you know, the the section Wonga is 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 subtitled The Art of Listening. Wonga has been extremely successful in listening to its customers. You know, for a time before the payday loan, the cap on interest came uh, came in for a time it was by far the most expensive um, payday lender in the UK and yet it succeeded in becoming from a position when it was you know third or fourth to becoming the largest payday lender in the UK which is quite astonishing given the extreme cost of its product the way it was able to do that was because it was very good at understanding who its customers were of course this is also tied into their various marketing practices and so on um, but they were very good at understanding who its customers were and how to attach them, and crucially, how to keep them attached, um, um, which it does in a, in a variety of, of ways that I haven't got time to go into now. Um, so yeah, that's part of what we do. And just very quickly, what we also trace in the chapter is the way that these processes actually sometimes break down. Wonga um, was very successful, but what it didn't fully understand was its attachment. And again, here I draw on this kind of notion of, of wider attachments or attachments that exceed the market. Um, to, to, to public controversy, to, to the public mood, uh, which increasingly turned against it, and actually to, 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 the, to, the, to the power of, of, of regulation to constrain its um, activities. So, so that, that um, argument is quite an interesting one in terms of returning to the question about how people have themselves loved things. 
And that is particularly uh, puzzling in terms of finance markets, consumer finance markets, because the the, the finances is it, a vehicle to something else. It's not direct. You know, people don't want the finance. They want finance for their means to achieve something else that they love. So industrial assurance, in a, in a way, was based on um, familial attachment in the sense that the outcome people wanted to achieve when they took a policy out was the, the decent burial, initially the decent burial. Subsequently, other things like a, a, a substantial sum to uh, achieve other still primarily Familial things like weddings and anniversary parties and big holidays as the 20th century went on. But these, the insurance company, when they were doing all those, all, when the agents were doing the talking, they were, they were listening to what it was that people loved and cared about and, and enabled to code, and you can see this in the marketing and in the advertising campaigns, enabled to encode those outcomes in, in the understanding of the policy. Now that's quite different when um, Wonga do a bit is also it also has some, also has parallels. What is it that Wonga was listening to? What was it that Wonga was getting to understand about what its consumers wanted? And I think the consumers, in some ways, you know, in, in data, uh, as Joe would uh, explain, is difficult to get because Wonga are not really giving it away about who their customer base are and what they know about them. We know that they swept up lots and lots of data points based on web browsing behavior and Facebook profiles and so forth to get a sense of who the customers were. But, you know, a, a sort of not entirely serious guess what Wonga's customers were wanting was to go out. They wanted to go out at the weekend. They wanted to buy, you know, to buy things so that they were well-dressed at the weekend. So there's a kind of social outcome at the end of that that the financial intermediary company is trying to understand and trying to say, well, we are the mechanism for that. And you can also read that in Wonga advertising that it's got quite, or controversially, a light, crazy, um, you know, granny scratching vinyl um, vibe about it. Yeah, we're crazy, we're we're having fun. It's fine to get into debt because, you you know, having fun is more important. Well, they tried to rebrand themselves recently. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was it. Um, I, I mean, you, you talk about you know, you know love and you know our finance example as being a means to something else. And I wonder if we, we can kind of conclude with the penultimate chapter in the book, which is the simple story of a man's love for a classic car. <laughs> and I mean, you don't need to say too much about this because one of the things I like about this chapter is like it's really clearly an autoethnographic account. So it, it, it's really unfair to kind of say to the editors, you know, explain somebody else's <laughs> story. But it, it's quite nice in a way because... As I say, you know, we, we've kind of scratched the surface of the book, but this chapter stood out, I think, um, from the others because it is quite different. And, you know, there's stories about companies in there, but it's really, you know, kind of the story of like a, a classic middle-aged man's project and how he becomes attached to a classic car. Well, Hans Schielberg, whose chapter this is, is, of course, eternally young. I think he may be kept, be kept eternally young by his love affair with the Thunderbird, which is a very beautiful car. It is. It is. Yeah, the photographs um, are great. Um, and, you know, what that chapter details is, yeah, it is an explicit case study in how you have yourself love something. And in Hans's case, how you have yourself love something through this incredibly long and enduring process of care and nurture and how that that is a technical and material and distributed process. You know, if you geolocated 
um, all the parts that went into the reconstruction of this uh, car, this, this beautiful Thunderbird, you know, you, be, you would be stretching all over the world. And um, also the parts and tooling the parts. So Hans talks about the way the way in which he sort of re-engineers screws that are no longer available because he doesn't have to get the car working. He has to get the car to its ideal um, original. Um, and that is a, you know, this is practice, but there's also something involved there um, that even words like love are not quite getting mm. to in terms of rendering. What is this about? And it is some fundamental level. This is what products and markets do. I mean, our chapter is called The Market Will Have You, and it's, it is fundamentally based on this conceit, this argument, that what the market is doing in putting products out there is they're putting products out there that assemble ourselves. It's through our relationships, and this is a Tardian point as well, it's through human being we might be more accurately captured, characterised as human having. We are what we are. We acquire our identities. Stuart Hall once says identity is always a matter of becoming as well as of being. So Hans's chapter in all sorts of ways describes this kind of technical, material, symbolic, emotional process of building relationships with objects and things in order to become ourselves. Hopefully that's given a sense of kind of the, the richness of, of the book and the, and the different chapters as, as well as its kind of major theoretical contribution. It's always a bit mean to kind of say to authors, so what comes next? But, uh, but what comes next? Well, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, so, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm taking this kind of interest in, in, in data in various ways. So I'm thinking, very interested in what happens, how we might think about publics in relation to data, um, how data might constitute certain forms of collectivity that they're perhaps they're aware of and that they're not aware of. Um, that's kind of one issue that I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm also kind of moving to research on tax. So thinking about this, how this very dry thing mm, we call yeah. taxation Again, again, sort of similarly, how, in actual fact, um, practice of taxation go about the business of keeping people attached to not necessarily markets in this case, but actually just states. So, how states produce what I call fiscal consent. So, so my bigger project, and it's hinted at uh, in uh, the introduction of the book, uh, is to do with um, the role of these devices, wearable devices, and self tracking, and the role of big data, and particularly the claim that big data changes the way we know ourselves, that big data will um, provide a form of knowledge about ourselves and our action um, that, that will fundamentally alter the self so that the technology has us in this in this kind of really fundamental way. Um, the self is on the wane. We are becoming um, products with, who, you know, the outcomes of neoliberal capitalism where... where, where um, Everything, all our moods are monitored and all our actions are controlled. Um, for me, in terms of thinking about, well, what is this claim? Um, can big data, can these new personalized technologies really change the nature of ourselves? And if you think about the fundamental question about, well, are we ourselves through what we have? For me, there's a deep and radical contingency always about the shapes and forms of identity. And it's not that nothing ever changes structurally, it's like things change all the time. So how can you get to, you know, epochal moments of change that are different? 
Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Joe Deville and Elizabeth Fall, who are two of the editors of Markets and the Arts of Attachment, which is published by Routledge in 2017.